I'm here today with Dr. Dale Forsdyke, who is a senior lecturer in sport injury management at York St. John University. Uh, in addition to his academic background, he also has vast practical experience working with uh, injured athletes. Um, he was the uh, head of medical for Women's Super League, uh, the soccer uh, in, in the UK. Um, he has also worked as a physiotherapist and a physical performance coach for the Football Association. And he uh, is currently the head of science and medicine uh, for the York City Regional Talent Club, which is a women's uh, fem a female sport academy uh, in York. It's great to speak with you today, Dale. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me. That's okay. Thank you for inviting me, Les. It would be great if you can talk a little bit more about your background, uh, both academically and uh, in terms of your, your work as a physiotherapist. Yeah, so the, the two have kind of traveled together, really. Um, uh, and the, the, my practical or applied part of my persona has really fueled my research agenda. Um, and, and then that obviously fuels my, my teaching and the perspectives that, that I'd like to develop in the, the students that, that I work with. Um, so for a number of years, uh, over 10 years, in fact, I've been head of science and medicine um, at York City RTC. Um, it's the highest level of elite girls academy we have in the UK. Um, and, it's, and it's my kind of responsibility to strategize and, and coordinate a team um, in terms of, well, what's the sports science provision our players get and how does that help with them developing them as international soccer players? Um, but also from a medical side, it, it, it's me that's kind of designed our approach to how do we prevent injuries uh, and probably more pertinent to our conversation today. Well, if a player is injured, how do we work with them? What do we do? What do we avoid? Uh, and how do we return these players back to sport uh, when hopefully they're, they're physically, psychologically, technically and tactically ready to do so? Yeah. What, what spurred your own interest in injury? Yeah, so um, a, a number of things. I, I track it back to my undergraduate degree, which was firstly in, in physical education. Uh, and the first bit of research that you're involved with in a UK university is your dissertation. It's your, it's your year three. Um, and I remember uh, my mum, actually, uh, who'd had a, a shoulder injury uh, and she was relatively active prior to the shoulder injury uh, and then you know according to her she mismanaged you know not really well well coordinated her, her team around her um, and then her activity levels plummeted um, and that just led me to think well you know what what happens there you know why do people's intentions maybe to returning to sport change following injury because you know, we live in a, an era now where technologically we, we, we're at our most advanced. So our approaches should be as good as they ever have been in terms of returning athletes to, to sport or activity or exercise, whatever their intentions are. But there's a disconnect there. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty sure that, you know, physically people will, will get better. Time says that they will actually heal. And, and, and maybe, and this fueled my research agenda a, a little bit, is maybe there's a, a psychological explanation or a psychosocial explanation to, to why people just simply don't return to pre-injury levels of sport, exercise or physical activity. Yeah. So may, maybe you can talk more about the focus of your research, Dale. Yeah. So... Um, it's got two prongs to actually what the, the first prong is, is looking at return to sport outcomes uh, and, and really trying to address the question of, well, we'll have all of these athletes getting injured. Um, we know that's a problem. We know there's high rates of injuries. We also know that that, that actually return to sport outcomes uh, are probably underwhelming if we, you know, if we put it politely uh, and, you know, we need to start thinking of things other than, than physical factors. And that really fueled my interest into trying to research psychosocial factors uh, through conducting a, a systematic review, which was lucky enough to get published in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, 
it, it started highlighting the importance of, of this concept of, or this construct of psychological readiness. Mm -hmm. um, and so that kind of follows my path down to, to try and research, not just psychological readiness, but the whole concept of readiness. Uh, and, and maybe what are the different dimensions of readiness? You know, how can we understand that? Uh, can we measure that? What impact does it have? The other side of my research is around injury prevention. Mm -hmm. And again, for, for years and years, we've been looking at that from a purely physical point of view. Um, despite theory suggesting that psychological factors or personality factors can, can, can impact that. Uh, we've been doing lots of things like warm-ups and we've been doing lots of exercises like the Nordic hamstring exercise and, and things like that. And we're missing off spending equivalent time or some time maybe dealing with some of those stress and coping uh, issues that, that may, you know, make an athlete more predisposed to, to being injured. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, we published a systematic review in the British Journal of Sports Medicine on that and actually looking at, well, when interventions have been done, uh, what's their real world effectiveness in terms of their efficacy, uh, what we know about compliance to these interventions and their efficiency. Mm -hmm. um, and it might be a publication bias, but lo and behold, if we can intervene from some of the psychological factors that individuals have, uh, we can reduce the, the risk of injury. So if I'm an athlete or coach listening and you just mentioned that stress or personality may play a role in injury risk, I'm wondering how that's the case. What is it about stress or someone's personality attributes or characteristics that could increase the risk that they get hurt? Yeah, so th there's a theoretical basis for that, uh, and it's all to do with uh, the brain and the amygdala in, in, in the brain in terms of how we, we perceive and respond to stress within our body. But the Williams and Anderson model from 1998 kind of describes the stress response. Um, so the amount of, you know, sport stress, the amount of non-sport stress, um, can, can affect my body psychologically in terms of a narrowed attentional focus, loss of concentration, poor decision-making. Uh, but there's also a physiological or physical element to that in terms of increased muscle tension. If, if I've got an increased muscle tension, it may impact my range of motion. It may impact the, the, the muscle strength output that I can get from that. Uh, and and though it's for those two reasons together that then may make me uh, more at risk of, of injury. Right. So kind of that attentional uh, impact of stress where maybe you're getting distracted or you mentioned that you kind of get that tunnel vision, right? You're not yeah. thinking in peripheral cues, but also the physiological impact of stress on hormones, timing, coordination, muscle function that then may increase injury risk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and unless I have the, the, the correct amount and type of, of coping skills to be able to mitigate some of that, uh, then I'm going to end up with an increased stress, stress response. And that might be that that predisposes me to, to being injured versus other people. Yeah. So you mentioned your uh, review of the research that you published in the British Journal of Sport Medicine on some of the interventions or strategies that may help people manage that stress. What are, if we're thinking in terms of injury reduction, what are some um, psychological or coping strategies, I guess, that athletes could employ to help them manage stress and reduce their injury risk. Yeah, there was there was a there was a real variety of them, but the the, the major ones that had the highest efficacy were stress management based, and also the literature it's published that they're more stress management based. Um, so there's things that range from things like progressive muscle relaxation uh, to breathing techniques to creating stress diaries uh, in terms of to, to audit that stress and maybe reframe how what that stress actually is. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy kind of uh, appears within the literature as well. Um, although that kind of falls outside my skill set into the more kind of clinical side of psychology. Uh, but there were mainly stress management techniques. Yeah. And what so I do as a... What I do as a practitioner 
to try and follow that research through to impact is we we look at the wellness of our players on a routine basis so typically you know i i want to find out about a player's readiness to 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 train or or to play so we we get them to fill in a self report questionnaire where we try to monitor sports stress but also uh school stress for example um so we, we don't say how stressed you are. We phrase it as how relaxed do you feel today? Just so we can get a gauge that actually, is there a pattern that across a season, um, is there a pattern or spikes in stress that we may be able to, to use the psychologist that, that's attached to the RTC to intervene? Or we know, for example, with some of our players, they are going to be facing elevated amounts of life stress, such as exams at school. Um, uh, and again, that's an opportunity for our psychologists to maybe intervene and, and talk about dual career demands and uh, stress management techniques, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it's an interesting point, I guess, in terms of the impacts of stress on injury risk, because you know, you're suggesting it's not just acute stress in, in discrete situations uh, you know, where the athlete you know, may get on the field of play and they're worried about something specifically but even things like life stress. And um, I know in a study that I was uh, involved with, with uh, some Swedish colleagues, Andreas Iverson and Urban Johnson, we looked at the role of daily hassles, like sort of these chronic stressors and found that they were a significant predictor of injury in um, elite football or soccer players in Sweden. And uh, so, you know, maybe there's something about this sort of chronic or cumulative impact of daily challenges that can, I guess, wear the athlete down and increase their risk of injury as well. And that hints at a couple of things to to me, Les, which is, you know, I think within the sport world, we're really focused on athletes in maybe the two hour window that they are with us uh, and, and kind of that, that is them. That's their identity, everything they do. And we forget that behind every athlete, there's a 24 hour, seven a day, seven day a week human being. Um, and I don't think humans can really separate out, oh, this is just a sports stressor. This is a life stressor. I think there is that accumulated nature to it. Yeah. Um, and, and part of my role is in sports science. So, you know, we often talk in sports science about loading and the relationship between loading and, and, and injury and spikes in physical, when we look at it from a physical point of view, so spikes in physical loading equals injuries. Well, how about we look at loading from a psychological and a physical point of view, uh, and it could be spikes in either of those that can, uh, you know, can cause injuries. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a great point. I guess load, you know, if you define it more broadly, is more than just their physical load, but it, it could yeah. be the demands that they're facing in their school and their life. Maybe there's, you know, as you mentioned, you know, athletes are human beings. So maybe part of the load is, well, you just had a fight with a significant other or something like that. Um, and all that can come to bear on, on their stress levels, their risk of injury. Um, so it sounds like, um, you know, in your role as a sports scientist, um, in, in working with high-performance athletes that you're attuned to or aware of what's happening with athletes beyond just, you know, the time they come to you or, or that sounds like there's benefit in doing so, right? Having conversations about, you know, what's happening in your life outside of, of you know, when you're coming to the, the football pitch. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think you can sit back as a, as a practitioner and go, you know, we, we take a, a, an athlete centered approach or a holistic approach to developing athletes. Um, unless you, you take, to take into account, you know, all those different facets that make them unique and, and individual. Yeah. So on that point about an athlete centered approach, uh, before we started our, our recording, we were talking a little bit about, a paper that we're working on with uh, Adam Gledhill and, and Tom Goom, um, looking at athlete empowerment, injured athlete empowerment. And so I'm curious, maybe you can elaborate 
on that notion of what an empowered athlete means in the context of injury recovery. Yeah, and you know, we probably discussed this at length, didn't we, in terms of trying to nail down a, a, a key definition of, of what that is. Um, and, you know, certainly the definition we, we fell upon was, you know, an empowered athlete has uh, the right amount of self-awareness and, and the, the correct expectations that are realistic and clear uh, to take control and, and, and ownership of, of their return to sport process. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I really quite like the work by Johnny King, who published an editorial um, about, well, how can we take a more athlete-centred approach? And he talked about, well, the athlete needs to become the CEO of their own business. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're the chief operating officer of that process. Right. Um, right. And as such, they, they need to have hands-on and understand all the different processes, all the different people that they coordinate. Um, and, and so really that kind of encapsulates what, what empowerment is um you know um and obviously we feel that it's really important you know for for athletes to feel that right right to sort of have the understanding that um in in many ways that of course there's important support systems and and kind of external or contextual factors that influence recovery but it's also you know the athlete taking that ownership i guess that can be critically important in the quality of their recovery or the kinds of outcomes they, they experience. Um, earlier, Dale, you mentioned return to sport outcomes as an yeah. interest of, of yours. And maybe you can speak a little bit more about what you mean by return to sport outcomes or what specifically those are. Yeah, so for me, um... You know, there's various that appear in the literature and various that appear in theory, but the key return to sport outcomes are, you know, is that is that athlete returning uh, to their pre-injury le- uh, pre-injury sport first and foremost, um, if that's what their intention is. Um, the next stage is: are they returning to their pre-injury sport and also remaining injury-free? Mm-hmm. Um, which is which is really important because you know um, injury does suck, uh, and there's some injuries that really suck more than others. Uh, and I don't I don't imagine athletes would want to uh, go through that whole experience again uh, if given the option. So remaining injury free is a critical outcome. Um, and then there's kind of the third layer of that is are they returning to their pre-injury sport? to a level of performance at or above um, where they were prior to injury. Right. Uh, so there's a, there's a performance element to that as yeah. well. Right. Um, how, how, how do you assess or measure the performance part? Okay, so that, that's, that's really, it's really hard. Um, so within the literature, it's not very well, it's not very well defined. Um, and, it's, and really, it's just taking you know, coaches throw away opinions. I, I think that there's room for future research around using key performance indicators from performance analysis and, and maybe starting to look at, well, pre-injury across, uh, let's say, 10, 20, half a season or a season's worth of games. This is what your performance analysis data actually was. Let's have a look at what that's like after you've returned to sport. And we can only really say you've returned to a level of performance when really maybe some of those technical and tactical key performance indicators are equivalent or not. Yeah. The other yeah. level of that is, is just, is, you know, things like have you retained the same status in the team? So have you got your place back in the starting 11? Are you still considered uh, for the next international camp maybe? Right. Um, so there are some crude measures, but I think, there's room to grow in terms of more, some of the more scientific understanding of, of that. Yeah, so it, you know, it, it can be a challenging sort of notion, I guess, to assess, right? Performance, I suppose, can vary from you know, one sport to a next, from position, one position to a next within a sport. Uh, they're probably appraisal things where the athlete has some sense of their beliefs about how they're performing relative maybe to 
how they performed prior to the injury, but also, you know, you're alluding to maybe like um, functional movements or, you know, like maybe they're sort of um, biomechanics or kinesthetic kinds of, of indicators uh, that look at maybe efficiency of movement pre, post, th those kinds of things, I guess, or, or maybe even just, you know, how many goals were you scoring before? Yeah. How many goals are you scoring after? So I guess it's, um, yeah, a challenging area in terms of that third layer that you mentioned with, with assessment of performance. Um, to, try and, to try and facilitate that within my own practice, uh, what, what we do is within our return to sport criteria, uh, number one, the coach signs that they're happy for the, the player to, to both return to the training and return to, to competition. So there's a, there's a coach involvement there who can bring, you know, that technical and tactical um, intuition they have about the player to the table when we make decisions. Uh, but also that, you know, there's a bespoke criteria within there, which is the coach is happy with the training form because the last thing I would really want to do is a player to return back to sport, not confident um, and just be seen as a spare part or that, it, you know, that limit their motivation because suddenly they're trying their best, they're doing what they can, but they're still not at the level of, of, of all the other athletes. So yeah. I want players to return confident that they are going to be of use within that team setting. Right. Earlier, Dale, you mentioned that one of your areas of, of research interest is this idea of readiness to return and, and what that looks like, what it means or what constitutes readiness. It's certainly an area of mutual interest. Um, from your standpoint, what, what does it mean for athletes to be ready to return? And how do you know or how do you gauge whether they're ready or, or not? Oh, that, that, that's a, it's a, it's a major question there. So for me, um, when we start looking at some of the outcomes that that research would, would lead us to believe, uh, if somebody's not physically ready to return to sport, then that's quite easy. They're, they're not robust enough to meet those physical demands. Uh, physically, they're placed at, at risk because re returning to sport is dangerous. It's not predictable. Uh, and we can see actually how physically that can lead to, you know, some negative outcomes around underperforming and re-injury. So if I'm low in physical readiness, that, that's maybe what I can expect. Um, and we've seen lots of athletes, haven't we, whether it be in US or UK sport, that are rushed back to sport really, really quickly, uh, so quickly that physically they can't quite be ready. And it's often those athletes that become either your, you know, your career rehabbers uh, or end up breaking down again. Mm. We're starting to understand that psychological readiness is equally as important uh, in terms of its relationship with the decision to return to sport, its relationship with returning to sport at a, to the pre-injury level of performance. Uh, there's actually that association from a lovely paper by McPherson linking it with re-injury and associating psychological readiness with re-injury and also some great work by Zarzicki and the Delaware group uh, linking it with functional performance as well. So we know there are negative impacts uh if you're returning athletes when they are not psychologically ready yeah. now we could plot that on a quadrants couldn't we and we could just go okay the only real great quadrant to be in maybe is that we return athletes back to sport when they are physically and psychologically ready um now your second part of the question was how do we how do we know this uh and that's really really tricky um Physically, we, I think we've got some pretty well-established, reliable and valid tests. Um, so we can put athletes on an isokinetic dynamometer. We, we can put them through some tests where we look at their aerobic capacity. We can look at a return to lactate thresholds. Uh, we can look at hop testing, although hop testing's come into some criticism of, of, of recent. So there's a lot, there's lots of tools to our armor, really. From a psychological point of view, psychological readiness, 
the tools are okay. There's tools that are there. Um, and certainly the things like the ACL RSI um, is, is an injury bespoke return to sport uh, inventory that kind of is a proxy measure of, of psychological readiness. Um, and the good thing about that is it's being used across other pathologies now instead of just ACL. Right. There's a, a more generic measure in terms of the, the Glazer work, the injury psychological readiness to return to sports scale. Um, again, it measures chiefly confidence, but confidence you're going to remain injury free and, and, and perform quite well. Um, and there's there's other injury ones like the Cersei scale for, for shoulder injuries. What I would say is, and this is, uh, you know, this is my own personal uh, kind of synthesis from where the literature is. Within my return to, to play or return to sport criteria, I use a number of those scales as opposed to just relying on, on one. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that the research area is much as mature yet to just go, this is a definitive scale. I'm happy that this one scale measures exactly what I want to, to measure. So I often take an, uh, um, or triangulate from a, a number of different scales to make my decision around psychological readiness. Right, well, and I think, Dale, you raise an important point that there still seems to be uncertainty about what readiness is. And, and my sense in reviewing some of the literature in this area is that you know maybe we're putting the cart before the horse so to speak because people are trying to measure a construct they don't really fully understand what what the construct is right like where you know you mentioned glaser scale that essentially equates confidence with readiness to return well that may be part of it but may not be the sum total of what it means to be psychologically ready so to go out and then develop a measure focused specifically on confidence may not capture the breadth of what it means to be psychologically ready. Or, you know, in the case of the ACL readiness uh, scale um, uh, by Kate Webster, that that does have some different components to it, right? Like assessing emotions um, or your risk appraisal. Do you think you're going to get hurt? So there's, I guess, there isn't really consensus, I wouldn't say, on what it actually means to be psychologically ready. And, and it's, uh, although increasing evidence is showing that, however it's defined, that it seems to be predictive of some important outcomes, like whether the athlete gets re-injured or, or you know, whether they're returning to their sport or not. Um, so it seems like there's something there that's important, but we're still not quite sure maybe what it actually is. Yeah, and it's only really recently that as a profession, um, we, we, we've really started to try to measure this, this thing uh, or to take account of, of psychological readiness as, as being an important component of return to, returning athletes to sport. Uh, so we've made some really good headway in terms of, hopefully, we're now measuring this um and and to inform our overall impressions of uh you know should an athlete return to sport or not but i think there's still some way to go in terms of how robust the instruments are that we that we use to measure it which is in an editorial about it i, I spoke about using instruments but not forgetting the fact you should use your own working knowledge of the athlete uh, as sure. well sure. which is normally gleaned from maybe you know hundreds of hours of working with that athlete and, and lots of informal conversations you may have to, to form your impressions as opposed to rely just on a, a single scale. Yeah, well, I think that's a great point, right? Like maybe the question is, is how are these scales used, right? And, and um, if it is used as one piece of information that informs a conversation with say a physiotherapist and an athlete, rather than an exclusive piece of information that's relied on to make decisions, that that's you know, maybe more in line with the value of a questionnaire or inventory. Um, but also, I guess there's still probably a lot of uncertainty about what certain scores do in fact mean, right? So if like an athlete scores above a certain score or below it on any one of these 
questionnaires we've just been talking about, what, what does that mean in terms of their likelihood of getting re-injured or returning? And, you know, I suppose we're getting more studies to help us um, better understand what, what these scores may mean from an applied standpoint and how we should interpret them in practice. Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, like you said, that there's one thing using a reliable and valid scale, but then there's another in terms of in practice, well, what's a meaningful change right. uh, within these instruments? And, right. you know, a, a paper that I read, which, which, which basically filled me with fear, um, was a, a review by Berge on, you know, what are the criteria that athletes get to return to sport? Um, and and Berge pretty much found out of about 215 papers, as a profession, we're still using time as our major criteria to return athletes to sport. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, I think in only one of the papers that he, he looked at with it, that used criteria, in only one, they had a psychological measure. Right, right. So time, the, the point there being that time, like how long since they've been in their rehabilitation or recovery and, and um, that's kind of used as the gauge to determine when the athlete should be returning. Is that yeah, the yeah. conclusion? And, and I think that might, be an, that might be another component of overall readiness. So overall readiness may well have this psychological, technical, tactical, physical and biological element to it right. um uh, and so i think readiness is a is a really complex uh, construct to maybe look at uh, but a really interesting one that can hopefully fuel lots of debate and lots of research and um and lots of good practice that across different sports so it, you know how how do they establish or measure or uh, recognize readiness in their athletes right right yeah, and you know, I suppose if we can get to the point where we have maybe a better understanding of what these different components that you were just referred to are in terms of is the athlete ready, um, and that can help make better decisions about you know reducing injury re-injury risk or you know ensuring that you know the athlete uh, returns happy and healthy and and able to, you know, perform at a level that they're satisfied with it, then, then uh, I suppose it, it's, you know, the, the research is paying off in practice in that case. Um, what, what are some of the things in your either experience as a, a clinician, as a researcher and, and scholar in, in the area of injury recovery that facilitate readiness to return? What are some factors either specific to the athlete, the environment that increase the likelihood that they might be ready to return? Yeah. So there's, there's a number of these. So number one is having realistic and clear expectations. Um, I think an athlete whose expectations have not been managed uh, or because we're dealing with athletes that have quite a lot of stakeholders that are involved in their, their injury process, the expectations of everybody else haven't been managed. It is going to become disillusioned. They won't know what to expect. They may have unrealistic expectations of themselves uh, upon return to sport. They may think, you know, they, they might be back performing how they were prior to injury and be impatient. They may think, you know, that they should be starting and, and, and finishing the whole of the 90 minutes, um, that they shouldn't be a substitute. Um, so there's an expectation element to it without, without a shadow of, uh, of doubt. Right. Uh, and that's really quite tricky to, to manage right. uh, because you've got to manage that with the athlete and, in my case, parents, um, but also coaches as, as well. Right. Sure. Do you see those expectations uh, also not just in regards to their post-injury or their return to sport after the injury, but that athletes have expectations about their rehabilitation or sort of you mentioned time earlier, that they have expectations about sort of their ability to progress through time or to rehabilitate within a certain time frame? 
are those yeah. expectations apparent? Uh, without a doubt, I think a player will always want to return to sport yesterday. Uh, they'll want it uh, to be done it in as quick as time. And and to a certain point of view, coaches want exactly the same thing. Um, so it's quite often down to to medical practitioners to to be able to manage those expectations that everybody has, and and that's really really tricky. And 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 within my own practice, I'm just really keen that I manage that from day one. Um, that we sit down from day one and we discuss their, the, in, the, in, well, the injury journey uh, that we have at the regional talent club. Uh, and the fact that each stage of this injury journey is underpinned by you demonstrating certain abilities to be able to progress to the next element of that injury journey. Um, so the athlete, the parent, the coach is really, really aware that it's not a case of, you know, a time-based criteria that you're going to be rushed back. I will give you the best chance possible of returning to sport, you know, but you must meet these different conditions. Right. Sure. Um, so I spend a lot of time with, uh, with players when an injury's happened and, and maybe receiving treatment. Uh, to explain that so they understand that journey and what's also important is that they understand the journey may not be a linear process um, I think athletes expect that day on day they're just going to get better and better and better um, and and I often draw the the lovely uh, graph where the 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 line just goes lovely diagonal uh, and, you know, that's what they expect. And then I draw another line, which is a bit more messy and it changes in direction and magnitude and, and um, it's more dynamic. And I said, realistically, that's probably going to be more like your injury process. Yeah. Uh, the journey will be frustrating. We'll make slow progress. Sometimes we'll make quick progress. Uh, but please don't go into this thinking that you're going to have a lovely linear experience and it's going to be great uh, because you may suffer setbacks and that's okay. Mm. What that does is that means that if they do suffer a bit of a setback, there's less of this idea of, oh, there must be something wrong. I've gone back to square one. Right. Uh, it hurts now. Uh, that must really be a really bad thing. Um, we manage expectations like that quite a lot. Right. And, and so it sounds like education and communication with the athlete plays a significant role in the work that you're doing to facilitate their recovery. Yeah, it, it's probably the greatest gift that as a practitioner I can I can give, uh, you know, believe it or not, with 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 medical practitioners, um, we're starting to realize it's not what we do, it's how we do it. So, and by that, I mean, there are lots of different treatments we cannot give to people. Um, and often the treatment specific effects are variable in the research, you know? Uh, but, what, but what is really important in the research is contextual effects of treatment. And the context in which you deliver your treatments or your exercises is really, really important. So, that quality of your interactions, the fact that an athlete has this sense of awareness of, you know, why am I doing this? What options do I have? Have I had the opportunity to, to ask any questions about this? So we get that instant buy-in with, with the person. It's, I mean, it's the basics of consent, isn't it? Understanding options, making choices, benefits, risks, and, and, and being able to ask questions. And, I think as a, a group of practitioners, we probably could do better with that. Right. Um, ultimately, I want my athlete to, for each one of my athletes to understand, A, what's wrong with them? Uh, you know, why does it hurt? Why can't I move it? Uh, I want them to know why it was caused or the probable uh, reason why that was caused. I want them to know what that journey is going to be with the injury journey. I want to know, we know what are the conditions that they may well be progressed or, or they're going to return to sport with. But the other bit is they, they can understand that, you know, what am I going to do or what can I do to prevent this happening again? 
Yeah. Because uh, that's a serious concern for athletes. Right. So I was just going to ask, Dale, like when, when you provide the, those kinds of information about the nature of what's happened to them or about sort of, you know, expectations for the injury recovery journey, or you allude to, you know, maybe helping them distinguish between different kinds of pain that they may be experiencing. What, what are the benefits, if any, of providing that information to the athlete? based on the the athletes that I predominantly work with which uh, are anywhere kind of from eight years old to, to 16 year olds uh, it, it's really really important because number one is at that age that they're, they're injured that their knowledge and understanding because they've got limited experience of injury means they don't know anything about it uh, that they, they can't really fully understand the processes that are going on uh, they don't understand the, the reasons or, or risks behind premature returning to sport. Uh, and in a way, that, that's a really tricky part for, for dealing with those players. Parents, some are good, some, some are quite challenging. Uh, but what I want to give them in terms of a gift is if, if that happens again in their football career, that they're not back at the same place where they're catastrophizing the fact that they're injured, um, that actually they're a little bit more savvy. They have more knowledge and understanding. Uh, they know what sort of support they need, where to find that support. They, they've been empowered through the process that hopefully I've, I've imparted with them. Yeah. Um, part of what I do with them for that, one method could be I just tell them, uh, you know, I tell them, you know, this is what's happening in your body right now. Uh, this is the, the tissues that are injured. But again, I'm not sure that's in the athlete's best interest. So I give lots of things like injury homeworks hmm. um, where the, the players, I sculpt a task, the players leave the session with me. They then bring their injury homework uh, and it forms a bit of a discussion and, and provides feedback for them. So they create that, that self-awareness. And right at the back of this, uh, we, we talked about, you know, they need to own that process. Players need to own their own process. Uh, and that's just one way in, in which I try to get the players to invest and in own that process, really. Right, right. So, you know, when they have that knowledge and information or, you know, you alluded to things like giving them rationales and choices and then that feeds in or that fosters the ownership of the process, which, you know, then sounds like it may translate into behavioral things like how invested they are, how much energy they're putting into their rehab or um, those kinds of things. So um, I've done a little bit as well where I've, I've provided players with questions to go to their hospital appointments with. Yeah. Um, and that was really born out of one player who, uh, had had an osteochondral lesion. So she'd had a little fracture of a, of, of, of a tibia. Um, but that's all she'd been told by the, the consultant surgeon. Right. Uh, and I remember speaking to her and her mum after she'd had that the MRI scan. And I said, okay, in your own words, right. can you tell me what's the matter with your knee? Right. And, and she went, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's just words to me. It's right. just language that I don't understand. Uh, and so I, I basically said, right, for each appointment you go to, can you please just ask these questions? Right. Um, yeah, you know, that's and they're just simple questions. Right. Because, you know, I guess, you know, in that example, it's like if you don't even understand what's happened to you, you're not going to have any idea what kinds of questions you should be asking. And so, you know, when you equip them, with that, that knowledge of, okay, here's the kinds of information that are important or useful to know. Then again, hopefully that has some beneficial consequences. And it's like, okay, I see why I'm doing this, or I get the benefit of this exercise and I understand what it's doing for me. They're more likely to uh, be invested in, in doing it. Um, just on that note, uh, what, what would you say are some um, skills maybe or attributes of athletes who seem to make an effective recovery or however one defines effective or successful recovery yeah so for me it, is, it comes down to expectations that that's number one so they have clear expectations of themselves uh, 
that throughout the process, they've remained patient, but optimistic. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that they're able to rationalize, you know, things will get better. It just might take a little bit of time. Uh, that that's going to be going to be important. Uh, and and for me, within my setting, it, it's the athletes that that keep engaged with their teammates. You know, mm -hmm. certainly the athletes I work with, that they, they sacrifice so much to be able to train. You know, three times a week, and and they play on a weekend as well as being schoolgirls and balancing a social life. Uh, they need to be in around their, their teammates and, and, you know, still have that identity that even though I'm injured, I'm still a valuable and well thought of member of, of this squad, uh, which takes a little bit of, of kind of thinking about with how I do, I, you know, how do I facilitate that with them? Um, things like, you know, I'm really careful not to, make my appointments with players at times where I would say there's peak socialization. So uh, at the start where they're in the changing rooms together, uh, chatting about goodness knows what, um, but it's, that's what I refer to as peak socialization. I would never then even dream about making an appointment with a player and their parents when I want them to embrace in that, that social experience and connectiveness with their teammates. Right, right. With that as well, naturally, they get extra connectiveness with their coach. And we know that the, the coach is a huge power figure in this idea of returning to sport. Uh, will the coach think about me the same way? Am I still important to the coach who makes the decisions? And it just keeps that player in, in connection with the coach as well, which is also really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, Go ahead, sorry. So for me, um, it, it's those things together. But, you know, I have, you know, I have worked with players that, you know, I think you, you've talked about in one of your papers about physical and psychological readiness not occurring in the same time frame. Right. Um, and I've worked with a number of players that probably years after they've been injured, I would not say that they were psychologically ready. Yeah. Um, one player, especially, um, we were playing away from home and she was just going to make up an excuse why she couldn't play in the game. She was going to feign an excuse because we were going back to the ground where she ruptured her ACL. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, luckily, I, I managed to, to chat with her before the game and, and mention a strategy that we were going to do. We were, me and her were going to specifically warm up in the spit, in the, in the blade of grass that, which you could remember that she actually did that to prove that there could be positive outcomes to her returning to the, the scene of the crime. Yeah. But she, but she was in complete uh, emotional wreck leading up to that game. Hmm. So what are some of the challenges or fears, concerns that athletes have, uh, I guess, at any point in their injury or their recovery journey, as you, you put it. I like that. Yeah, so number one is um, when, no, when will I return? So there's a, there's a time-based uh, fear with that. And, you know, how many missed opportunities am I going gonna, gonna to lose out on? Uh, whether that be an international call-up, a major international tournament, number of games. Uh, so there's that sort of fear. There's a fear of it happening again uh, and, and being seen as, as going back to square one. Uh, and like I've mentioned earlier, for, for some injuries, that sucks. Uh, you know, there's, there's things, for example, that, that happen too frequently, like graft failures in ACLs, mm -hmm. which means that athlete is effectively back to square one, needing surgical intervention. Um, and that, that's a heartbreaking story for every single one of those athletes. Uh, and then there's an element of, well, will I ever be the same player? You know, yeah. uh, will I ever get back to performing like I used to do? You know, will I be as fast uh, is there going to ever be a time where I'm not going to think about this injury? Um, you know, and, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that 
injury changes athletes. Um, I don't think they ever learn to, you know, to not think about it. I think that they just learn to cope with that and, and, and deal with that and rationalise things. Or some of them certainly do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always think about uh, a couple of years ago, so I run, um, and a couple of years ago, I just fell over running. Uh, if you've seen my running gait, you'll understand probably why. Uh, I probably <laughs> just sure, clipped the pavement. I'm but sure I fell over. Um, move like a deer. And, yeah. And, and even to this day, every time I run past that, that exact space, I remember that's what happened. Uh, I probably subconsciously alter my running style and pace around there as well. And mm-hmm. I think it's the same with a lot of sports injuries um, that, you know, players will compensate and learn to cope with that situation as opposed to forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just a whole kind of host or set of kind of what if kinds of questions and, and as you say, kind of learning how to um, uh, try to manage these these fears that maybe never entirely uh, subside or, or, or go away altogether. Um, I guess in terms of um, sort of managing those maybe fears or apprehensions, are there, you allude to an example of a technique or strategy that you use with one particular athlete um, are there kind of strategies for helping athletes manage some of the maybe negative thoughts or emotions with their injury? Yeah, I, I guess it comes down to a lot of it is the relationship between the practitioner and the player. Um, and, and, and that relationship really should be done pre-injury. Uh, I'm a big, again, I'm a big believer that your pre-injury relationship with the player will will often determine how effective your injury relationship is. Um, so that means that rather than just hiding away in a, a, a clinic room, that actually you're out there working with players before they're injured. So you have that meaningful interactions, that connectiveness with the players, so that when they are injured and there is heightened levels of stress, they, they recognise that they can come to you, they can be open, they can share their thoughts. Uh, I've often used uh, peer mentors as well. Um, so if if players, because they're quite young, they often, again, inexperienced, if I can set them up with a peer mentor who's been injured, gone through that process, and I've even used international players for this, for, for some of our players, is, is there someone that they can talk to about that? You know, is there a mechanism by which they can talk about those negative emotions uh, and through talking about it, maybe rationalize that that's, you know, it, it, it's okay to feel like that. Yeah. Uh, obviously there's a, there's a step over, isn't there, to some, what we refer to in, uh, in the medical professions as, as orange flags, where some of these normal negative emotions spill over into to more clinical emotional disruption right. and, and it's about trying to recognize that uh, and refer when those do present. Sure, sure. So, you know, part of it, I guess, is maybe just legitimizing that it's perfectly understandable. There are going to be some frustrations and maybe a whole set of emotions that go with um, a, an experience that, as you mentioned earlier, changes the athlete. So I also wanted to ask you, Dale, does injury change the athlete necessarily or inherently for the worse um in what ways does an injury change the athlete so again i'm from the belief that for an athlete injury sucks uh but that isn't me saying that injury is is all doom and and, and gloom for for an athlete Mm um i really do believe that if it's managed well that that injury is a really fantastic learning experience uh and and and, it, and in a sense that an athlete may be through being injured um it can be for their betterment um whether that they work on something skills wise their understanding of the sport uh whether that be they just understand their bodies better whether that be um it's allowed them to pursue other roles within within that team. Um, 
I do think that if you manage the injury process, it can have a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and and often when I, I've worked with you know uh, senior um, female players, it, it's about that idea of coming back stronger uh, and 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 it allowing us time and and to to address opportunities to to maybe plug the gaps of the reasons why you did get injured for instance right, right. um so right. you know i've had some players who have talked about injury as an opportunity for reconnecting with their families uh mm-hmm. and their partners because they spend so many time either just either training or or, or playing that really spending time with family and uh, and, and and partners it has been limited so yeah. it's allowed them to plan their weddings or, or do some house uh, renovations. Yeah. So, uh, or they've worked for the media, for example, because they're injured uh, and they've explored that as a, a potential career avenue. So mm-hmm. I think there's lots of positives that can be made, um, but I, I think that almost needs to be managed for, for each athlete. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure that it, 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 it comes naturally. Sure. So, the, you know, like, given the fact that injury is can be an inherently negative or frustrating experience, that doesn't um, mitigate or eliminate the possibility that there can be positive uh, outcomes or benefits to it. But I like your point, assuming that it's well managed. Yes. And yeah. and so it's not that I guess one automatically derives benefits from the cha- an adversity challenge such as injury but it's you know how maybe the athlete copes with it the kinds of support they get that you've been talking about the nature of the interaction between the patient and, and their primary practitioner or key others like the coaches and teammates yeah um, so i think that's yeah just a superb point yeah, that 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 sort of element of resilience that 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 you were talking about there and, and this idea of growth through adversity or, you know, how, how do you make athletes more resilient is, is by exposing them to adversity. Uh, I imagine that in some athletes that may be a, a process that goes, uh, that, you know, that goes hand in hand uh, and it's a pretty hands-off approach. Uh, I, I think being proactive with that and, and, and trying to manage or, or provide a context that facilitates some opportunities or a learning experience through injury it is probably a, a, a better way to to work with athletes than presume that it just happens automatically. Yeah, right, right. And I know uh, one of my former doctoral studies was looking at uh, Paralympians and people who had had, you know, significant and traumatic life-altering injuries and, and one of the processes that was important in facilitating that idea of growth that you mentioned was um, having some deliberate reflection on on their experience and you know like um, reflecting on their experiences in an intentional way and thinking about what they meant how they might use that experience moving forward so that they weren't debilitated necessarily um, so, yeah, again, I think it's an important point, not just that you have the adversity or, you know, like what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Well, yeah. not necessarily. It's only insofar as certain things are happening, how you're coping, how you're managing, what you're doing to maybe reflect and, and some of those external support factors that may increase the chance that you're not debilitated, but that there's some form of growth. Yeah, and, and I've chatted with quite a lot of players who have who've kept injury journals um, and, and where they've been encouraged to write down their, their thoughts in a journal, journal setting, but also, you know, track their own progress. Um, what, what I tend to do is I, I use the return to play criteria or return to sport criteria on the journey themselves. So they can actually see how they're getting better and stronger throughout that process. Yeah, um, yeah. So they yeah. can reflect on the journey a little bit more with that. Right. And, and I guess also within that, reflecting on their, their competence or increased competence as they're gaining yeah. in skills physically, maybe and otherwise. Um, 
One, I just wanted to touch on one or two other things. Uh, you know, I appreciate your wealth of knowledge. Uh, again, Dale, both, you know, from the scholarly standpoint, but also uh, practically and, and your work with high performance athletes. Um, in, in terms of, we talked a little bit about pain management and I'm wondering if there are tools or strategies that you use to help athletes with pain. And I suppose I default pain could be maybe physical, psychological. Yeah. Um, you know, other than some, some appropriate analgesics, um, it's, I think it's a powerful message to, to send to players that pain does not equal pathology. Um, and we're starting to understand that a little bit more in, in the realm of, of chronic lower back pain. Mm -hmm. Uh, that often for players, a major inhibitor in their progress um, and, and willingness to, to engage in some activities is pain. And it, it's reframing what pain is and what pain isn't. Um, so for me, um, that's a big important message that I send. No, pain's not, not good or bad. Uh, it doesn't equal pathology. So if you get a bit of discomfort, it, it doesn't mean that that's anything massively significant. Uh, things might feel different because you've not moved it very much over the last uh, month or so. Uh, and often what, what I do around that um, is I will often use pain threshold when I'm working with athletes. So I will say, for example, anything up to three out of 10 on a pain scale is okay because if we send out a message to to every player that everything's got to be pain free they probably wouldn't get out of bed on a morning yeah. um so that's a real important message anything above a three then we need to rethink about what we're doing the intensity of, of it the movement but actually it's okay to feel a bit uncomfortable and that's a really, really important message and empowering message to send out to people because, you know, we're programmed naturally to go, pain's a bad thing. Pain's a bad yeah. thing. How do I stop this uh, hurting? I know, I'll just, I'll just not do anything. Right. So that's a really empowering message that I think, and that there's some fantastic work uh, by the uh, David Opar, uh, Ryan Timmins, uh, Jack Hickey group around pain threshold rehabilitation versus pain-free rehabilitation. Right. Um, and lo and behold, working within a pain threshold uh, leads to a quicker return to sport, uh, but also leads to better outcomes upon return to sport as well. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you're making distinctions for athletes about what's benign pain or harmless, what's more sinister or harmful. Yeah. of pain and also just letting them know or reinforcing the idea that there is pain uh, as part of the rehabilitation process. You know, if you have swelling and you go in the ice bath, it's not going to feel comfortable, but that's that pain is, is important to maybe work through in the healing process. Or, you yeah. know, maybe you're doing an exercise that's uncomfortable, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing further damage. That's part and parcel of the recovery process. So how, how do you then um, help athletes disentangle pain which is benign from pain which is more sinister or harmful? Part of it is the, the threshold that I use. Right. Um, and you know, so the threshold that I use, which is that three out of 10, helps me and them distinguish, uh, you know, when, when should I be worried? When should I be concerned? When pain might not be benign? Uh, it may be, you know, I'm provoking a, a, an irritable structure, for example. Um, so it's mostly when I'm guiding them with and educating them around that pain threshold uh, that we start separating that out. What we know with certain chronic pathologies is the way that the brain interprets pain is different. Uh, so with certain chronic pathologies, tendinopathies can lead to this, um, especially, uh, and fasciopathies, where the more chronic an injury gets, 
the brain starts interpreting uh, pain in a different way uh, and starts seeing movements that shouldn't hurt uh, as an interpreting that as painful. So with chronic injuries, there is that psychological element to, to pain that, that is really difficult to untangle with, um, with athletes. Because like I said before, we're, we're just led to believe that pain is a bad thing. Um, and, and if it hurts, that's a really negative thing on the body uh, and everything needs to be pain free. Um, and untangling that with an, with an athlete and, and trying to think about, well, how can I get them to view their pain in a slightly different way is, is, is really, really tricky. And it needs educating. It needs patience. Uh, it needs you showing them some brilliant infographics that are out there on certain pathologies like lower back pain. Uh, so we're, we're having to almost get them to think about reinterpreting what pain is, what pain isn't, so that we're not using that as a, as a reason why they can't, they, they can't move. Sure. And I would imagine maybe in the case of high performance athletes there, that reinterpretation isn't too far of a stretch because they're used to experiencing pain, right? Like they know that maybe when they're doing the hundred meter sprint or, you know, they're doing a full out effort, there's pain involved, but it's not necessarily hurting them. And this, you know, in fact, helping them maybe gain greater fitness or, or yeah, um, yeah ex, you know, exceed their current capacities in some ways. Um, so uh, my last question, Dale, is um, if you can offer or if you were to share a piece of advice for injured athletes, what would it be? Uh, the, the, the biggest bit of advice I would offer, uh, and I've said it a few times of this, you need to own the experience. Mm. Uh, and to own the experience, you need to, you need to be educated. Uh, you, you need to, you know, seek information, but you need to realize that you need to be central to the process and you need to drive the process. Um, and, and, and in that regard, you know, hopefully you'll come out of that with an increased self of awareness. You'll feel in control of the decisions that are made because you're fully informed of what the choices are and the benefits and the risk. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you are driving the bus uh, and hopefully you've got a really good set of passengers or social support network that you can rely on uh, to help you as you drive that, that injury journey forwards. Yeah, those are uh, great words to finish our, our conversation. So I want to, again, say thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure speaking with you, Dale. As oh, always. Very welcome. <laughs>